Today we bring you a wizard who is a wizard no more, a Thanksgiving murder, and a tale of a legendary hijacker. Those stories and more on this Thanksgiving episode of The Mr. Cemetery Show. You're listening to The Mr. Cemetery Show, the podcast that's dedicated to the dark corners of the world. From weird news to historical oddities and the unexplained mysteries, here's your host, Mr. Cemetery. Hello! <laughs> and welcome to the show, you sick twisted freaks. That are hiding, avoiding all your family. Who knows? Maybe you're listening to us on a walk or hiding in a car. Or maybe you're sitting in the bathroom with your headphones on. Whatever your excuse is to avoid other humans, thank you for joining us. I'd also like to remind everyone this holiday season that it's illegal to drive blindfolded in Alabama. With all that being said, let's get this show started. Good morning, you booger eater. Good morning, you pickle sniffer. Hey. Fruity fun cake. Hey, I sniffed a pickle one time. Label me for life. Well, that's rude, booger eater. Fruity fun cake. Fruity fun cake. Fluffy pants. Hey, leave pants out of this. Do the fluffy pants dance. The Ooh. fluffy pants dance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> ah, it's already going to be bad with you today. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Thanksgiving memory? Uh, not a specific one, and I'm not really sure if it's... I'm sure it happened in Thanksgiving or Christmas in the early years. Had a habit of putting foot in mouth with your family. Yeah. And your mom would crack up and leave the room. And Yeah. That was good times. <laughs> That's probably my favorite. I did it a few times. A few and times. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. You couldn't keep your mouth shut. So yeah. it was great. I loved it. <laughs> Usually it was towards your brother. Yeah. He so, deserves you it. know. And then the fact that your mom would crack up and leave the room. Yeah. That was great. <laughs> All those were great. Yes. Those are probably my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oops. <laughs> So, since this is the Thanksgiving episode, what is the worst Thanksgiving food ever, in your opinion? I don't really know. I think maybe something that's been fairly new that I've seen people doing is, like, oyster stuffing. I'm not a fan of that. No, not a fan of that. I'd have to say between that or green bean casserole, both of those can go down the toilet. It depends. I've had some bad green bean casserole, but I've had good green it's bean. It's all bad. <laughs> I like some of them. No. As long as there's not too many mushrooms. No. It's super creamy. All bad. No. It's a hit or miss. Uh, no. All bad. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Just because you no. have the taste buds of a five-year-old. Hey, I like chicky nuggies. <laughs> <laughs> chicky nuggies in my belly are yummy. <laughs> Don't judge me, woman. Stop judging me! <laughs> All right, smarty pants. All right, all right, all right. Since you're so smart and think you're so funny. Hilarious. Not really. Yeah, you you are funny looking. (laughs) (laughs) I got a quiz for you for Thanksgiving. Are you ready? I guess. How long was the first Thanksgiving celebration? Four feet. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) Look, you just gave us great. (laughs) (laughs) Three days. That is a long Thanksgiving. Yes. That hurts my belly. (laughs) 
was thinking about it. Three days of eating and eating. That's about all I do. Yeah. Three days of eating and three days of people you don't like. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. What meats were served at the first Thanksgiving celebration? I'm going to say turkey and fish. I don't know. Ham. Venison, swan, duck, and goose. Not turkey. Swan? Who eats swan? <laughs> Screw you, swan! <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> oh. I'm looking at me, swan. What seafood was served at the first Thanksgiving feast? Oysters. <laughs> Lobsters, oysters, fish, and possibly eel. I said fish yeah. earlier, but you didn't put that on there. Well, no, that was in the seafood section. <sighs> I'll give you one point. <laughs> Who was the first president to pardon a turkey? Uh, Lincoln. <laughs> John F. Kennedy. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Which president made turkey pardoning an annual event? Uh, Nixon? George H. W. Bush. Really? Yeah. I thought it always was. I mean, in my lifetime. Now you know. Knowing's half the battle. Go, Joe! Damn. <laughs> <laughs> How many calories on average are consumed per person at Thanksgiving? Average. Not me. <laughs> the average person. Uh, 4,000. 4,500. Nice. Yeah. How much did the world's most expensive Thanksgiving dinner on record cost? 1.2 million. No, no. 150000 at New York City's Old Homestead Steakhouse. <laughs> and now you know. Yeah. Joe! <laughs> you can't have Thanksgiving without movies. Fuck football. I don't care about fucking football. I hate sports. Fuck that shit. That's why I love you. Turn off the fucking sport. Turn on some good old movies. Yeah. What are your top three Thanksgiving specials or movies? Grumpy Old Men. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I love those. I like both of those. <laughs> They're great. They were both great. Adam's Family Values and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yes. Freaking <laughs> great one. <laughs> Gotta watch that one. I would have to say I went a little different. Yeah? Because, you know, I'm a little different. Well, we know that. Yeah. Shh. Shut it. Shh. Don't tell everyone. Damn. Quiet down, shushy. Okay. Garfield Thanksgiving. It's fucking Garfield again. Yes. Son-in-law. Yes. <laughs> yes That's it. a good one. Got the weasel. Gotta love it. <laughs> Weasel the juice. And Boogeyman. 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 Takes place around Thanksgiving. A man stalked by an entity that haunted him from his childhood. Hmm. Boogeyman. Well, I can go with that. No, I gotta throw in a horror film. Right. With all of that goodness, let's turn it over to some weird-ass news. A New Zealand city is taking its official wizard off the payroll after two decades. Christchurch, New Zealand is parting ways with its official city wizard after more than two decades. His offensive remarks about women and local government, new tourism strategy reported, spelled as doom. 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 <laughs> Ian Bruckbury Channel is known as the Wizard of New Zealand. Apparently, even on official documents, like his passport. He's been on the Church Christ City Council payroll since 1998. 
receiving an annual salary of 16,000 New Zealand, which is more than 11,000 in current U.S. dollars, to provide his acts of wizardry and other wizard-like services as part of the potential work for the city of the Christchurch, according to the New Zealand's news site Stuff. How do you get that job? Sounds like a sweet gig. Gotta be a wizard. You need to figure out how to do this. Yeah, quit being lame and start being a wizard. Yeah. But that job title will soon become, like many wizards before him, a thing of legends. Boom, boom, boom. The city council has met with the wizard and sent him a letter thanking him for his services to Christchurch over the past decades and informing him that we are bringing our formal agreement to a close, said Lynn McClellan. Okay. We'll call her Lynn from here on. Yeah. Council's assistant chief executive, she said, final payment will be made in December. The decision was a difficult one, according to Lynn. She explained that the church Christ potential landscape is changing. Aww. That may not be the only reason the Garter reports citing controversial comments by the wizard back in April. He said, and I quote, I love women. I forgive them all the time. I've never struck one yet. Never strike a woman because they bruise too easily in the first thing. They will always tell their neighbors and their friends. And then you're in big trouble. He said at a screening of a current affairs news show on New Zealand Today. Gee, that sounds terrible. Damn him. <laughs> the wizard said that council has waved him off because he didn't fit the city's modern image, calling them a bunch of bureaucrats who have no imagination and are not thinking of ways to promote Church Christ overseas. Despite the disappointment, the wizard promised to keep visiting Church Christ's art center to chat with tourists and locals. He said, and I quote, it makes no difference. I will still keep going and they'll have to stop and kill me. Right on. Right on. He's a wizard. You don't want to fuck with him. Right? Wizard rebel. Yes. He does his little wizardy things. Yeah. My question is, are they're mad because he says he's never hit a woman? I mean, well, yet, but, but he's never done it, and he wouldn't. Is he supposed to say the opposite of that? <laughs> I'm not getting involved in none of that. <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> I just want to know what his other wizard-like things are. Yeah. What are his duties? Yeah, it says provides acts of wizardly and other wizard-like services. He's a wizard prostitute. Oh. The Mr. Cemetery Show will return after these messages. Do you like coffee like we do? Try our friends over at Sinister Coffee and Creamery. Sinister Coffee was founded in 2018 and has been a woman-owned business from the very beginning. Their beans are prepared in small batches to ensure a perfect roast. Sinister Coffee and Creamery also offer coffee subscriptions delivered to your door as often as you like. They offer weekly, monthly, quarterly, or however you like. Don't believe us? Order a small batch of organic coffee today and try it for yourself. And use our special discount code CEMETERY10 to save 10% off your order. Again, that code is CEMETERY10. Are you in the spine-tingling crime stories? The Krista McKibben's Hatchet Man book is for you. It's a chilling tale set in the 1800s about one of America's earliest serial killers whose disturbing crimes occurred in both Ohio and Maryland. The book also includes a full trial and confession as told by the Baltimore Sun. Hatchet Man by Krista McKibben is available on paperback and Kindle, only at Amazon.com. Now, back to the Mr. Cemetery Show. 
this is the most weirdest Thanksgiving episode ever. 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 I gotta go first today, don't I? Mm-hmm. Oh, crap. All right. This story is known as the Blount Family Briefcase Bombing. I'm intrigued. I did kind of a quick story of it. It's kind of, the details are all over the place, and yeah. I couldn't find a lot as much as I wanted to, so this is the quick version. Okay. On a trip for some ice cream on Thanksgiving Day in 1985, Joe Blount and his family arrived home and found an ordinary tan briefcase just sitting on the front porch, so they decided to take it inside and see who it belongs to, so they could return it. Sounds reasonable. They carried it into the living room, and then when they opened it, it exploded. Boom. Dang. Yeah. And then it's a ruin your day real fast. Yes. Curl your ice cream, too. Not the ice cream. Yeah. Killing Joe and his 15-year-old daughter, Angela Joe, and 18-year-old nephew, Michael Columbus. Joe's 14-year-old son, Robert, survived. However, his burns were so badly, his plastic slippers were melted to his feet. Only Joe's wife, Susan, escaped without any injuries that day. After a frustrating investigation at times seemed hopeless, police believed that they arrested the man who planted the bomb. They also believed that the bomb was intended for someone else. 31-year-old Michael Ray Tony was arrested in 1999. He's got three names, including a middle. That makes him a serial killer. Serial killer. He was arrested in 1999 and charged with capital murder. Michael had no connection to the Blount family or none that anyone could find that there was no physical evidence even connected to the crime. Hmm. Tony wrote to everyone he could about his innocence. He didn't know who put the bomb on the front porch, but he knows it wasn't him. Then it was revealed that the county's district attorney's office withheld 14 pieces of evidence during Tony's trial, which was key to his defense. That's a lot. That's a huge amount. Huge. Huge. Tony's execution was overturned and he was able to walk out as a free man on September 2009. That was him serving 10 years on death row for a crime that he didn't commit. After one month of being a free man from all that time on death row, Tony was out driving his pickup truck on a foggy morning. He lost control of his truck. Michael Ray Tony died that October morning. Not a lot of investigation was done to see if it was an accident or something else. A lot of people believe Tony was guilty, but we'll never know. Because the bombing of the Blount family murders are still unsolved to this day. That's really weird. I and mean, what a really crappy thing. I, you get off, de- he was on death row, right? Death row. And then like a month later, you're killed in a wreck? Yeah. That's really sucky. It's really sucky. It's, this, this whole story is sucky. And you got people dying in a bomb. No one knows yeah. anything about. Evidence is gone. Cops think they got the guy, but it's not the guy. He served 10 years on death row. Gets out. Free man for less than a month and dies. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. I feel like we should play ironic violin. It's more sad. Yeah. It's like right out of the... <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Sad. Like, yeah. I brought everyone down on Thanksgiving. Way to go. I'm sorry. I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting and weird story. Yeah, it's definitely weird. <laughs> well, what do you have? All right. Well, now that you brought us down... Sorry. Maybe my story might bring you up a little bit. Probably will. You can't get any worse than mine. 
It depends on how you take this story. Personally, I'm a fan. But my story is the D.B. Cooper mystery. Yes. <laughs> on Wednesday, November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, a man under the name of Dan Cooper bought a one-way ticket from Northwest Orient Airlines for Flight 305 that flew from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Cooper was described to be in his mid-40s wearing a business suit, overcoat, white shirt, brown shoes, and black tie. He carried a briefcase and a paper bag. Cooper sat in seat 18C before the plane took off and ordered a bourbon and soda. Around 3 p.m. after the plane had taken off, Cooper handed the stewardess a note. Without looking at it, she just placed the note into her pocket, but then Cooper spoke to her and said, quote, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. End quote. It's supposed to be a secret, and I didn't want everybody to know. <laughs> but since you're not going to look at it, mm-hmm. I don't That just made me look. Mm-hmm. I think that was funny. Hello, have a bomb, everybody. Surprise! <laughs> he then asked her to sit next to him, and when she did so, he opened his briefcase to show what appeared to be an array of wires and dynamite. Cooper then asked her to write down what he was saying and take it to the captain. The transcription read, quote, I want $200,000 by 5 p.m. in cash, but in a knapsack, I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes. When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff, or I'll do the job. End quote. Cooper also asked for the money to be only in $20 bills. When the flight landed in Seattle, Cooper exchanged the 36 passengers on the plane for money and parachutes and directed the pilot and some of the crew members to stay on the plane and fly to Mexico City, staying below 10,000 feet. William Scott, the pilot, told officials that he himself had chosen the route, not Cooper. As the flight progressed, Cooper put on a pair of dark wraparound sunglasses, which would later be featured in his composite sketch. Somewhere between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, and a little after 8 p.m., Cooper jumped out of the rear doors of the plane with two of the requested parachutes and the money. He was never seen again. That's some balls. Right? If he did have a bomb strapped to him, you know, you're going to jump out. I know. I always wondered what happened to that. Like, that's pretty dangerous. Like, right? Wherever you're going to land, is that thing going to blow? <laughs> Unless it was fake. I kind of feel like it might have been a fake. Could have been a fake one, but still fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> After jumping, the plane safely landed. Staff were questioned, and the plane was searched for evidence. The FBI found that Cooper had left his black clip-on tie on the plane, and they were able to procure a DNA sample from it. They then launched the case known as NORJAC, standing for Northwest Hijacking. More than 800 suspects were considered in the first five years, but were eventually narrowed down to 24. Flight attendants Tina Mucklow and Florence Schaffner had spent an extended amount of time with Cooper and were subsequently interviewed by the FBI. They both remembered that Cooper was 5'10 to 6 foot tall, around 170 to 180 pounds, and had brown eyes. Other staff members noticed that his voice was low, spoke with no particular accent, and had an intelligent vocabulary. That wasn't me. No. Although, I mean, no funny stuff or I'll do the job. Uh-huh, copper. I just... <laughs> <laughs> In 1972, letters were sent to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the Seattle Times, either confessing to the crime, eulogizing a recently deceased D.B. Cooper, or claiming to be his brother. However, most of these are thought to be fake. 
In November of the same year, Donald Murphy and William Lewis were taken into federal custody on charges of extortion for impersonating Cooper and selling his tell-all story to tabloids. In 1980, a young boy found a rotting package filled with $5,800 worth of $20 bills. The package was found at Tina Bar in Vancouver, Washington, where he was camping with his father. The money's serial numbers all matched the ones put out by the FBI after it was stolen in hopes of reclaiming the money and catching Cooper. From this discovery, it was generally thought that when Cooper jumped out, the money fell into the Washigal River, making its way to Tina Bar. This discovery yielded no further leads as agents scoured the area for more clues and found nothing. Something else to consider is that the initials DB are not actually relevant to the case. The FBI isn't sure where they came from. It was reportedly a mistake from a wire service that referred him as DB instead of Dan. Although Cooper was originally charged with air piracy, it was later changed to avoid the five-year statute of limitations, which would mean that five years after Norjack, he could not be charged. A grand jury then indicted Cooper for violating the Hobbs Act, a federal statute designed to prevent extortion, which had no statute of limitations. This means that no matter when Cooper was found, even if the investigation had been closed, he could still be charged. Bullshit. Now I'll get into some of the possible suspects in this case. The first suspect is Richard Floyd McCoy. This theory was popularized by Russell Callum, former FBI agent and Bernie Rhodes, former probation officer. Five months after Norjack in April 1972, McCoy was arrested for hijacking an airplane in a similar fashion to Cooper's. Both men were calmed through the heist, passed a note to the steward about the bomb on board and both containing the phrase, no funny stuff, requested four parachutes and parachuted off the rear of a Boeing 727. Both heists occurred while Brigham Young University was on break, where McCoy was a student. According to Column and Rhodes, members of the McCoy's family identified an object left on the plane by Cooper. Although the object was never publicly identified, it is believed by some to be a Brigham Young University medallion. This claim has never been verified and seems to have come from the Wikipedia page on the case. So it's probably crap. Oh. I just love how they all use the word no funny stuff. What if the steward just went, la, 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 la. <laughs> I mean, boom. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, like, what a killjoy. No funny yeah. stuff at all. Huh? Yeah, that's rude. <laughs> the FBI eventually ruled out McCoy because he did not fit the description provided by the flight attendants. Additionally, according to FBI archives, McCoy was home with his family the day after the heist for Thanksgiving dinner. Also, unlike Cooper, McCoy was caught after his heist and sentenced to 45 years in prison. McCoy would later escape from prison in Pennsylvania and eventually died in a gunfight with agents in Virginia. The next suspect is Dwayne Weber. This theory was made public by his wife, Joe Weber. Joe Weber claimed that on Dwayne's deathbed, he pulled her close and said, I have a secret to tell you. I'm Dan Cooper, end quote. After learning this, Joe apparently revisited clues in Weber's life. Joe also claimed that Weber would have nightmares and would sleep talk about leaving fingerprints on a plane. He had also apparently taken her to Tina Bar where the money had eventually been found. Weber's handwriting was also apparently found in the margins of a book about D.B. Cooper. Weber also had a knee ailment that he claimed he had received by jumping out of a plane. It was also reported by Joe that Weber had possessed an old Northwest Airlines ticket for no apparent reason. Ralph Himmelsbach, a former lead FBI agent, professed that Weber does fit the physical description. He does fit the criminal background that I have always felt was associated with the case, but ultimately did not believe Weber was Cooper. The last suspect is Kenneth Christensen. 
This theory was purported by his brother Lyle Christensen and supported by author Jeffrey Gray. Lyle, Kenneth's brother, came up with the theory after watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Lyle was convinced Kenneth was Cooper and even cited a deathbed confession from him that stated, quote, There is something you should know, but I cannot tell you. End quote. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh-huh. I so am going to do that to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> There's something you should know, but I can't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> And just die. (laughs) Damn you. (laughs) That's rude. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) You would do some shit like that. Right? That is like the best last words ever. Mm. Mine's going to be pickle weasel. Pickle weasel. (laughs) (laughs) I can believe that. (laughs) Kenneth was a flight purser or a head flight attendant for Northwest Orient Airlines. He also loved bourbon and bought a house shortly after Norjack occurred. When Gray showed a picture of Kenneth to a flight attendant that had interacted with Cooper, she agreed that it was the closest match out of all the suspects presented, but she couldn't say, yeah. However, the FBI later debunked Kenneth on the basis that he did not fit the description and that Kenneth was a paratrooper. The FBI believed that Cooper was not a skilled jumper. Some other theories surrounding this case are that D.B. Cooper did not survive the fall from the plane. This theory is widely believed, including by Larry Carr, FBI special agent. Larry Carr, taking over the case in 2007, had this to say about Cooper's flying skills. Quote, We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. We concluded that after a few years, this simply was not true. End quote. This was backed up by the finding that only one of Cooper's parachutes was a functioning chute. The other was a training chute that was sewn shut, and the functional one was a military chute that could not be steered. The weather conditions were also inadvisable for jumping. Carr said that no experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. End quote. Cooper also jumped over a wooded area with no visibility to the ground below, as there was a cloud cover at 500 feet. However, Cooper's body and parachute were never found. Next, D.B. Cooper worked as an employee at Boeing. Norjack was therefore an inside job. This theory is also widely believed, notably by the online organization called Citizen Sleuth. Citizen Sleuths discovered cerium, strontium, sulfide, and pure titanium particles on Cooper's tie through the use of an electron microscope. Tom Kay, lead citizen sleuth, noted that, quote, these are what they call rare earth elements. They are used in very narrow fields for very specific things, end quote. Although these elements were rare during 1971, they were being utilized at Boeing in the creation of an advanced supersonic transport plane. If Cooper had worked at Boeing at the time, it would explain the elements being on his tie. Kay added that, quote, the tie went with him into these manufacturing environments for sure. So he was not one of the people running these machines. He was either an engineer or a manager in one of the plants, end quote. Kay believes that the key to identifying Cooper is in the memory of a person in the Pacific Northwest who was involved with the aerospace industry at the time. He asked that any person who fits this profile should contact him through citizensleuth.com. Though this story may seem like a lot of information, what I have presented is just a small portion of the facts of this case. The FBI called their search for D.B. Cooper one of the longest and most exhaustive investigation in its history. As of 2011, the FBI case file measured 40 feet long. They closed the case in 2016, but are still willing to hear any possible leads. Out of all America's skyjacking, this is the only one that remains unsolved. Well. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's that Kenneth guy. I don't know. It's a hard one. Yeah. He definitely lived. I think he lived. He lived. He's hanging out with the Alcatraz guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just, just like that. FBI. I mean, it's not a victimless crime, but no. it's just so well executed, I feel like. <laughs> what happened to the money? Could be in circulation today. Are they still checking all the numbers? We don't know. I feel like the FBI is not. Yeah. I feel like they're just like, eh, he couldn't survive. Eh. Yeah. We don't want to do our jobs. I feel like the Kenneth guy fits the most best description. And I know they don't think that it was a they don't a know. professional parachutist because of the awful conditions, but if he was a professional and he said, I can do this. They don't know what he can or cannot do. Yeah. You just don't know. They don't know that I, I can put a quarter in my nose. They don't know that. So how can they say, eh, he can't make it? Yeah, I feel like with a lot of these unsolved cases, they just kind of dismiss uh, all things because they just... Don't want to do their job. Yeah. Eh, fuck it. I'm just good. That's not possible. No. I don't want to look that. Look over here. Yeah. That's, I agree. I think he made it. He's hanging out with the Alcatraz guys. Could be. And they're laughing at the FBI. Going... Ha ha ha. Stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> I love the story, though. Yeah, it's a great story. It is. And that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode of the Mr. Cemetery Show. If you like what we do here, tell your friends, your family, help spread the word on social media. Whatever you can do, it's much appreciated. Until next time, for Krista, I'm Josh. Thanks for listening to the Mr. Cemetery Show. See ya! Cabo, 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 look, I'm a turkey.